0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedents, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and as always, I will be your host today. Uh, And I am so excited for today's guest because he's an absolute master of sales and specifically how to apply it for startups. Gary Swart, is currently a venture partner at Polaris, uh, but he has also been a CEO of a fantastic company, Upwork. Uh, he joined when it was still Odesk, and it was just a few people and an idea pretty much, and he really built up the sales channels and the growth of this marketplace on both sides, both the freelancers and the companies that were looking for work to turn it into one of the largest and most important kind of alternative work sites in the world. And he started his career in a totally different place. He started his career working with some of the biggest, most organized sales organizations in the world. So he started with Pure Software, Reed Hastings' first company. Reed Hastings, of course, went on to found Netflix. But starting with Pure and later, uh, through a few acquisitions, ending up at IBM, he went through the sales training programs of some of the largest, most sophisticated companies in the world. So Gary's story has so much that we as salespeople at startups can learn from, because he started in this environment that was startupy, got quickly brought in to one of the most sophisticated sales engines in the world at Big Blue at IBM, Then after a few years, he went over to be the CEO of a company and really managed to grow them to enormous success, almost to the point of an IPO. And now as a venture partner at Polaris, he sees hundreds of startups every single year and can give advice and education and can also learn from what other founders do really well. Gary is such a structured thinker, incredibly intelligent, incredibly prolific in the amount that he's written. I highly recommend you check out his LinkedIn, where you'll find dozens of posts, and he's able to speak upon this in an awesome way. I don't know if I've ever (laughs) seen anybody who so quickly can resort to, well, here's the four things that you need to talk about, or, or there's really three things that you need to focus on when you're doing this, and he does that, as you'll notice throughout this podcast over and over again, and so well. So it was an honor to interview Gary for the second time, and I am so excited to see what you all think of him. So without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Gary Swart. Gary Swart, welcome to the gong.
1: Thanks for having me. Very happy to be here.
0: Ah, this is a blast. This is actually the second time I get to interview you, so I get to dig in even a little bit deeper.
1: I'm thrilled to be invited back. I, I don't know how I made the cut, but happy to be here.
0: <laughs> only the elites, <laughs> uh, only the absolute masters can make it onto here. Uh, where I thought we'd start. So you, your whole career has been built on sales, and now as a as an investor with Polaris. You lead kind of the sales coaching for a lot of these clients. But I want to start with your first sales experiences because those were not at tiny companies. They were a big established firms. So tell me a little about what you learned being a sales rep at a place like IBM.
1: Well, um, to be fair, I started at a little company called Pure Software. I, you know, which grew into
0: is, a very nice which company. Which grew into yeah. a big
1: company. But I always say, you know, I could tell you my entrepreneur story about how I was selling root beer barrels in grade school Or junior high, you know, I'd buy them on the way to school, buy a whole bag for 70 cents and sell them for a nickel a piece, you know, that kind of thing. So I think I've always been. I had that
0: with Warhead's candy, the sour candies, same thing.
1: Yeah. So you, you know, I feel like I was always selling. And I ended up, my first job in tech was at a little company called Pure Software. And Pure... How little were they at um, the time? Pure was tiny. I mean, it was less than 30 people. It was a startup. It was, uh, you know, maybe a a million dollars in revenue. And we had a really, really good product. It helped uh, software developers write better, cleaner, faster code. Um, So it saved them time. And if developers like it, then, of course, managers and VPs love it. So I had this puppy dog of a sale. All you had to do was put it in people's hands, and they didn't want to give it back. And if they don't want to give it back, well, guess what? Then you have to pay for it. And so it was, somebody told me once very early in my career, they said, if you're gonna sell something, you might as well pick something that sells itself. And I was lucky enough to get a phenomenal product. And then we built other products, acquired some other companies, built that into a bigger company, ultimately got acquired by a company called Rational, and then Rational got acquired by IBM. So I was fortunate enough to go on this journey from the jungle, the dirt road, all the way onto the mega highway um, sales the whole time, and every one of those zigs and zags was a different company, different environment, different selling challenges, different teaming challenges. And so I kind of feel like I got this great experience of um, not only selling, but of all the different uh, iterations of sales models and comp plans and, and, end. That makes
0: sense. Yeah, so let's tell me about Pure then. So you were there, I was doing a million bucks in revenue. What is it like to be in a what is a conversation with a client like when you have the confidence that your that your product is that good? Because that's rare, especially for an early company. There's lots of flaws, there's lots of bugs, lots of uncertainty. Maybe you gotta be educating the market, but you seem to have a certain confidence when you join Pure. Uh, that probably gave you some nice advantages.
1: I got lucky. I had a good friend who was running sales and she, actually a friend of mine, it was his wife. So he out of college married this woman. She was working at Oracle. She left to go to this little startup and I wanted to move to the West Coast. I cast a net to find everybody I knew and she gave me a shot. She said, look, you have no experience in tech sales, but I'm going to give you a shot. And you know, the day I started, I barely knew how to work a mouse. I mean, it wasn't technical, and here I am selling a very technical product to developers. But it was one of those things where it was almost like the less you know, the better, because you have to ask a lot of questions in order to figure out whether or not you can help somebody. And so from the very beginning, I think I learned consultative sales, not pushy sales, but like, what. What are your challenges? What's keeping you up at night? How can I help you? <laughs> you know, like tell me what's going on, and then I'll tell you whether or not I have something to help. So as long as you could get somebody on the phone, and talk to them, and then you could send them an evaluation or a demo of the product. Today it's just downloadable bits. Try it, and then we're you uh, sending CD why, ROMs we were in selling, the mail. Kind we were of sending thing? CDs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. two week trial CDs, and within three days. People would say, oh yeah, this thing's great. How do I how do I buy it? So honestly, it wasn't really selling, it was representing. And the cool thing about that product was once you had a few seeds in an account, like let's say you know it's a team of 50 developers and six of them are using your products, it makes it really easy to call up the VP of sale or VP of engineering and say, Hey, you know, six of your guys are using this product, and it's probably the six that don't need it. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, know, you probably have 40 other people that really need this thing. How do we talk about getting everybody a copy? And so after like, getting all these seeds out there, it was really fun to start doing these site licenses and, and uh, even company-wide licenses.
0: From that, so th- that's an interesting model. I want to ask a little bit more about some companies want to go top down. So they wanna go after the VP of sales. Hey, we got a product that your 50 engineers are really gonna benefit from. Let me walk you through. Why don't you buy a package for 50 and let's get started. You guys went the opposite way and there's a few other examples. that I'll I'll think of in the next few minutes or slip my mind, but that it did that really successfully. It sort of infiltrated the user right away at the company and then went up. What's the advantage of doing that and what kind of companies do you think are well positioned uh, to be able to go bottom up like that?
1: Well, I think it's really, uh, you know, it's a great point. You can either go bottoms up or tops down. It's really hard to do both. The interesting thing is that we were doing both. <laughs> you we, guys just
0: had the perfect product, had, perfect team, perfect everything. <laughs> we had a great
1: product, but we, um, and I, you, I know you know this story, but the, the founder and CEO of Pure Software was a guy by the name of Reed Hastings. And you may recognize Reed's name now because he runs a little company, Movies, Netflix, right? And so, Reed was a geek in a prior life and he happened to write this really, really technical product that did something that um, was incredibly hard to solve. And he did it in a very elegant way. So again, just a really brilliant product to sell. Um, but we had a, uh, a multi-prong approach where we would sell bottoms up via telesales and top down via field sales. And so we had a couple of enterprise field reps, very high-powered, you know, guys who had sold big deals, big iron, you know, big heavy enterprise stuff. And I remember when I first joined the company, I was support, I was a BDR essentially for two of these guys on the East Coast, and one of them closed a 600K deal with Bell Labs, and a $600,000 deal back in the mid-90s, was that was a huge deal, right, for a tiny startup. So we had enterprise credibility, but we also had telesales going out and seeding all these uh, smaller accounts. And once you closed a big account as a field rep, you got another account. So maybe you were working five to 10 accounts at any given time, and if you closed one, you got another one, and it was the inside job to like seed those big accounts and then hand them over to the field. So. What's the, what the
0: timing like? One of the things that I've been, I've been wondering a little about is how a startup needs to approach its sales strategy based on the timing of both its, uh, the state of its technology and the readiness of the market. Meaning, if you're selling something super high tech, self-driving cars, virtual reality, blockchain products, whatever, you need to understand how ready your technology is to be in the sale and solve some of those problems. If you're selling into a market, uh, you need to understand how ready that market is to receive your products. For example, self-driving cars, we need to be appreciate we need to appreciate what they are capable of today. And also, we need to appreciate the fact that even if they were perfectly ready and 100% amazing, we can go up to a, a head of fleet at a place like Autozone or Walmart and they're just not ready to buy. They're not ready to convert their whole thing, their whole system that they spent decades building into a self-driving system instead of a driven system. What was that like for you guys? You know, this was technology in the 90s, obviously IT departments were massive, but how do you think about timing in terms of a sales, uh, sales strategy, sales approach?
1: I think it's a really good point. Uh, you know, uh, when you're talking about self-driving cars or technology that's not, its you know, it's the adoption curve. And where are we on that adoption curve? And recognizing that the innovators and the early adopters, it's easier to to sell, right? Why? Because they're on the bleeding edge of looking for a solution for what it is you have to sell. Now, your problem there is just awareness. Um, you know, I often say people are interested or qualified, right? And if you put those on a on on a matrix and you say, you know, the vertical axis is how qualified are they, and the x axis is how interested are they, and you have people that are very very interested but they're not qualified. Uh, Maybe they're students, or they have no budget. They they can't buy a pencil without three (laughs) levels of approval. And then you have people that are um, not qualified or not interested, yet they came to your website, or they clicked on an ad, or they, you know, it becomes a lead in your funnel that you've got to disqualify or qualify. And so a lot of people spend time on people that, on prospects that are not qualified or not interested. Do you you know what I mean? Or they're interested but just not qualified. Yet you're spending time, you're putting them on the forecast and they can't actually buy. So the key is finding people who are qualified and interested. Those are the ones who are in market. They have a problem that you can solve. And it's an explicit need, meaning, not an implied need, explicit meaning they wanna take action to solve it. And those people are in market. And today, those people are online looking for a solution and people are buying keywords to reach those people who are in market. But the trick is finding people who are qualified, but not interested. And why are they not interested? So that's my upper left quadrant. Well, they're not interested because they don't know you exist. They would be interested if they knew there were a solution to this problem. And you have to move them along the continuum to get them into the qualified interested bucket. And so all of that is timing, right? If you try and take somebody who's not qualified and sell to them, well, That's a really long sales cycle, right? Because they can't buy, but maybe three levels above them can. And if you're taking people who are not interested, that's what I call a change mode sale. You have to get them comfortable with your self-driving technology. They're not ready to buy it, right? Maybe they have the problem, but they're they think, oh, we're going to build it ourselves. Or and there again, long sales cycle. So the trick is um, you know, optimizing for qualified and interested, and then how do people buy? Do they buy transactionally or consultatively or via enterprise? Hmm. And so all of these things, it's really important to know. It, it's hard to answer the question unless you know how your customers want to buy. What mm-hmm. are the
0: ways, when you talk about uh, qualified but not interested? What are some examples you've seen, you've done this yourself a few times, and we'll get into your role as CEO of Upwork, and and all the selling you've done there, but you've also seen this happen many times in the few years you spent as a venture capitalist and advising these companies on sales. What are some of the the specific tactics you've seen that work to help somebody who is qualified but not yet interested move into the proper quadrant? Because what I often see is somebody say, hey, we got these people, this is our market, this is the right market, and then they'll spend 18 months, basically all of their runway, trying to educate or teach or get in touch with or, or whatever these qualified customers who are simply, for one reason or another, not interested. And then they run out of money and never got a chance to actually get things going. What are the, what are the tactics that you, recommend, that you can recommend or that you've seen work really well of moving people who are the right, the perfect market for you, but not yet interested and, and building that interest within them?
1: Well, it's, uh, w- I mentioned it briefly, but it's all about moving from an implied need to an explicit need. So an implied need is, yeah, I would like to fix that. Uh, an explicit need is, I'm going to fix it, right? I want to take action to make this pain go away. Mm. And then, okay, but when do you want to take action? So I remember one time I, was, uh, I went to see a good friend, and he was running a very large team of p- product and engineers at Siebel Systems. I don't know if you remember them. They were the on-premise... Weren't they Salesforce. the yeah the pre-sales yeah. force? Yeah, <laughs> yeah Mark Benioff's course. big battle. And yeah, I think he had like three or four hundred engineers, and it, in his department. And I was trying to sell something to him. And he was this was friends and family, right? This wasn't a so he agreed to meet with me. And I said, this is what we're doing. Here's how I think we can help you. What are your challenges in this area? He goes, Oh yeah, that's a big challenge for us. And I was like, Ooh, ding, 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 ding. We're getting somewhere. What happens if you don't fix it? Well, if we don't fix that, there's this, this, and this. These are the implications of that. So spin selling is one of the techniques, um, and that stands for situation, problem, implication, need, payoff. It's not spin in the political sense. You know, it's spin somebody into buying it just something. This happens they to be a nice want. acronym. Coincidence. Uh, it's a good, good acronym. So they. Um, But then he said to me, he goes, listen, yes, this is something we definitely want to fix, but my hair is on fire right now around this problem. We've got to refactor our application because we're getting our butts kicked with this cloud-based thing over here. And so if you can help me with that, I'll buy that today. Or if you know anybody who's doing this who can help me solve this challenge over here, that I would buy today. Your thing I would put as priority three or four on my list. So I have a lot of things I want to fix. I just can't fix your thing today. Why? Because my roof is on fire. So I don't care about new shingles right now. My roof is on fire. So I think it's really important to know how big of a problem is it? What happens if you don't fix it? And even then, where is this on your list of priorities? And if continuously you're talking to these clients and they're, they're pushing you down on the priority list, well, then you haven't figured out product market fit. You haven't figured out the formula for getting people to say, "I, I wanna, I need to fix this problem today," so you haven't identified a big enough pain, you haven't articulated enough value, uh, so much that you've earned the right and respect to sell them product and collect money in return.
0: How much do you think that is of? my technology's not good enough, or my language about my technology is not good enough, or I'm addressing the wrong market. Like, wh- what do you think is the next step to do? You know, if, you, if I go up to who I think is my perfect customer, and tell them, hey, we're gonna solve these problems that you have, you know, we're gonna help cut your costs or, or, or make your engineers more efficient. And like, ah, sounds cool, but that's number three or four. Where, where do you go next? Do you look for somebody else? Do you go back to your engineers and say, hey, we need this feature, this is what's really gonna help me solve
1: it? I wanna know what's number one on their list. Right? And there's two approaches here. One is in discovery of number one, it may be something that you can actually solve. It may not be something that you can solve, but you know somebody that can. And so as you know, sales is a long game and you may wanna build a relationship with that future potential client. And so I've said, listen, this isn't something we can help you with, but you know what? I do know another company that I think can help you with this. With your permission, I'll go ahead and make an introduction. And you've just helped two people, and you've furthered your network. And in the process of going out and asking clients, what is it, what is it, what is it, your company may end up actually pivoting, right, if you find out that that problem is big enough. Uh, So I know another friend that did this. He got in front of so many clients that they said, "This this is what we need help with. And they ended up pivoting their product to that. And it was a great outcome. They ended up selling the company to Dell for a couple hundred million bucks after a short while. But they had tremendous sales traction and execution because they built a product to solve the number one pain point that they were hearing over and over again.
0: Yeah. The, uh, the idea of making, helping the client get what they want, not just what you have to offer them. There was a, uh, that Zig Ziglar's whole thing who probably nobody listens to anymore, but he was like the sales guy of the, I don't know, eighties and nineties back on tape. And his, he always talked about the sales career that you're building. So you're not trying to sell this thing today on a Wednesday. You're trying to provide solutions to people, and that might take years for you to be able to find the right solution for the right person.
1: Absolutely, and you know, people usually- Which might not
0: help the startup at this moment in time, which might not survive, but that's, that's part of the game. Well,
1: a couple things there. One is, what's next? Well, what's next is you may go find another job, right? Or what's next is you may come back to the company and say, listen, I'm on the front lines, I'm talking to clients every day, and what we're pitching isn't resonating. So I'm either using the wrong words, speaking to the wrong people, or they don't have an explicit need for our product today. So I always said rather burn out than fade away. Like how long do you want to stay at a company that isn't selling? Not, not long because you're paid on commissions, right? And so you want to go somewhere where the product can actually sell. And it, in the early stages, uh, there's people that are very good at the early stage because that's their job. Their job is there in the jungle Hacking vines to find those first couple of customers, and you know the person that's been at Salesforce for a few years and has lots of leads and understands process may not be the best fit to roll up their sleeves and go out and get those first co- couple customers. Um, but you'd rather figure that out sooner th- rather than later, right? Because it's only going to make your next job harder if you say, "Well, I was at this company for eighteen months, and how'd you do against quota? Couldn't well, not that good, yeah. not that well." Well. Is that you or was it a bad product? Well, if it's you, why would I want to hire you as a sales rep? And if it's a bad product, then I'm going to question your judgment. So, um, And then one other point I was going to make is, you know, people used to say, oh, this person's a phenomenal salesperson. They can sell ice to Eskimos. And that just doesn't fly anymore, right? As you well know, Zig Ziglar, you're there for the long game. If you sell ice to Eskimos and they don't need it, they're going to feel cheated the next time you show up. So... I think nowadays you have to deliver value.
0: Yeah, there's actually, uh, I was speaking with somebody about this, but there could be detriment to the company if their first salesperson is the kind of, the salesperson who can sell ice to an Eskimo, water to a whale. Uh, as Jay-Z said, I'm a hustler, baby, I sell water to a whale. But that could be a detriment because if, if, the, way, if the reason you're selling is because your salesperson is so good, so clever, so convincing, so whatever, you're not necessarily actually identifying needs. You're not necessarily actually finding product market fit. You just found some guy or gal who's, who's uh, quick-tongued and, and quick-witted and can really, really convince people really quickly, which may feel really good and, and may make you burn out instead of fade out, but could have had challenges as well later on.
1: Oh, it absolutely will. And you'll see that, you know, if somebody... Because you
0: hire their second person and they can't replicate it, then you're stuck. Replicate
1: it. Or... Worse, the clients don't implement the solution, don't get success. And nowadays, you know, G2 crowd, and there's all this, you know, if you, well, you're not going gonna to churn, if you're not getting value out of the solution, when it comes time to you know, renew, you're going to say, no thanks. We're not. Yeah. The market's very unforgiving. And so I think that um, companies can't get away with that anymore. You can't stuff the channel, you can't, you know, sell stuff to people that they don't need. Um, And so I I think that it's gotten a lot, I I think it's hard, right? I mean, you have to, uh, you really have to understand the client and deliver value. And you're looking for 100% referenceability. Mm -hmm. Not that we always, we we, we always were were doing that, but now it's even more acute. Yeah,
0: you mentioned something earlier as well that I'd like to get your thoughts on, which is you get to be on the front lines and you get to come back and say, hey, we're selling the number three problem here's what I think the number one problem is. Or another example is, if you're selling something super disruptive and super high tech that's really desirable, but is really gonna change our processes, you get to come back and say, hey, like, everybody's interested, but until we are able to solve this one thing, then we're gonna have trouble selling. And what I really like about being in early stage sales is the fact that the early stage seller and the engineering team need to be working very closely in tandem. Because the sellers get to be telling the engineering team what's missing. The engineering team get to be teaching the sellers about how to set expectations, about the reality of implementations, things like that. When it's working at its best, how do you think the relationship between the
1: salespeople on the front lines and the engineers
0: need, needs to look?
1: Well, I think it's a lot of what you just described. You know, you have a good relationship. Like, I used to go at least at least once a month, I'd have lunch with an engineer, even when I was an early sales. Co- person, right? And one, it's because I wanted to get to know them, because that was the audience that I was selling to. Two, we could talk about the product and what people like and what they didn't like. But you really have to be careful about, you know, the the sales people that come and say, well, if I had this, I could sell a lot more. Because you end up whipsawing your roadmap into things that customers don't want to pay for. And I have a perfect example of this. I remember early on, um, I was I when I ultimately left IBM, I went to a little company called Intellibank and we had really cool technology but we never really nailed product market fit. We had 60 clients of 52 different flavors, right? And we were custom building, we didn't call it custom build but we were adding functionality and features that weren't necessarily mass market, right? And one client asked us for workflow. They wanted to be able to drag a document into a, into a web dev folder on their desktop and then have a workflow kick off as a result. And we had brilliant engineers um, who could build anything, and so we built it, and went back to the client and said, "Hey, we we did everything you asked for. Here's what you asked for." And they were like, "Oh my gosh, this is this is beautiful. This is exactly what we need. Okay, we want it. We're ready to go." And I said, "Great. We would like, you know, a hundred thousand dollars." And they said, "Okay, we would like to pay you eleven cents." <laughs> and so, we we didn't really quantify how valuable was this to them. I mean, it's you're your listeners are probably cracking up saying, what an idiot. <laughs> Why didn't you ask them But it seems obvious. Oh, it's but so...
0: If a client tells you, oh, we'll get it if you do this one thing, nobody wants to bring up the money right away. I absolutely get it.
1: Right, so I call that ignoring a yellow light. Like, you know, we just went speeding right through a yellow or even a red light. And it turns out that not a cl- not a lot of... A lot of clients wanted it, but they didn't want to pay for it. It wasn't valuable enough. So really getting to the the the, the root of you know, how big of a problem is, oh my gosh, this is a huge problem. Well, tell me in terms of dollars how big of a problem so I know how much I can go back to engineering and really figure out if this is going to be worth it. And then you have how many customers are going to want it, and what are they willing to pay for it. And the combination of those two things helps you figure out, I think, what to what to prioritize.
0: Yeah. Um, how, how, how do you think you should approach in that way saying no to a client? Uh, no can be very scary to say, but also very powerful. The example you gave is great. How do you approach saying no to this company that you're trying to pitch and you're, trying, you're thinking you get $100,000 out of, but say, hey, this is just not on a roadmap. It's not something we're going to do.
1: Well, it's, you know, it's so funny. I can think of a, we were a very early customer for, um, I don't know if I should mention the product. Maybe I'll, I'll just use the initials, Zendesk. And um, we were a very early client. And we loved it, but we were asking for a lot of features. And I remember Zendesk saying, yeah, we're just not going to do that. And we could complain about it, but it didn't matter. We weren't going to get rid of the product. There was nothing better. It solved 90% of our needs really, really well. We wanted uh, built-in chat capability. And so we ended up going with a partner. It wasn't that robust. The integration sucked, but it didn't matter. The core product was so good. I have another friend that runs um, a little HR company called Trinet. You've a lot of
0: friends in high places. I we, we got to start hanging out more.
1: <laughs> I remember I was giving him a hard time saying, you, you know, your UI sucks. And he was like, doesn't matter. He's like, people go in once a week. They, they're they not doing stuff in there every day. They go in, they, they get their pay stub, or they do this one action. And yes, we're ultimately going to fix it, but it doesn't really matter. And I remember saying, how can you have that approach? But now I look at their business. The UI's gotten significantly better. He's done a phenomenal job. The company is is flying. And so it's prioritization, you know, it's almost like, um, if, if you're delivering value to your clients, you can't say, no, we're not going to do it. You you know, just completely be dismissive, but you got to be able to take it in and say, listen, let me tell you where it is on our list of priorities. But it's the people that say it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then it's like, where is it? You know, like you, you've delayed or they're uh, the functionality behind the scenes isn't good. In both of those examples I just gave you, the core product was solving our need, despite the fact that we wanted these additional features. I think it's where the technology is actually bad. It's not solving the need, and it's more of a bug fix than a than a, a feature request. It's a good right? way of saying it. if
0: you're if you're hail marrying for a sale by adding a feature, changing the color from blue to orange, doing whatever, then what you're actually selling is clearly not valuable enough.
1: Yes. And the risk to the company of overselling and under-delivering or having to bake something into the roadmap, I think a lot of startups make that mistake. I I was at one of those companies that made that mistake, right? And so I I don't want to do that again. Yeah. Uh,
0: Steve Blank in his book, uh, Four Steps to the Epiphany, has the line, sell the product the way your engineers built it. Mm -hmm. because it's very easy to sell something that doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, we'll build it later on. But you can sell the product the way it's been built with all of its many, many flaws, which the salesperson is going to be the very first to point out and be frustrated about. If you can sell that, then you can actually find the the sort of running room, the breathing room to be able to to continue to develop and improve it.
1: You know, it's really interesting you say that. um, Pure... Software merged with a company called Atria, became Pure Atria. Pure Atria was acquired by a company called Rational Software. And Rational Software is a big software company, software development tools, and like more, six, 600 plus million in revenue. That company ultimately got acquired by IBM. And when I was at Rational, we had, uh, we had a few hundred sales reps around the world, um, probably about 125 in the US. And we got everybody together at one point. And sales and marketing got on the same page. And i never forget our SVP of sales. Um, they, they're fantastic guys. They were out of HP, and they were really into the culture and the methodology and making sure everybody was trained. And I remember him pulling everybody together and saying, listen, you get to sing the music, but you don't get to write the music. We write the music, and you sing it. And here's the music, and <laughs> we want you to sing it right? This is the this is the way you, we want you talking about the product. Here's the way we want you to sell. And sales reps were measured not just on revenue, but on um, business basics, uh, territory growth and development, and their team contribution. So there were sort of four metrics. It was, did you hit your quota? What was your, how good of a citizen were you? Were you working with other sales reps? Were you Working deals well, your business basics, what was your average discount, and did you adhere to the basics and so the cultural part of selling it was all centered around this um, a doing the right thing for the client and I remember people getting dinged if they sold licenses that didn 't get deployed right so you had a renewal number that you had to achieve if you didn't hit that threshold you'd have to make it up with n- new licenses and so. Yeah.
0: A- Amazon's got a line that's measure the inputs, not the outputs. Yeah. Meaning if you do all the things right, I think it comes from Bill Walsh, the the football coach, but if you do all the little things right, if you, you know, if you're if you're saying the right words, you're singing the right music, you're approaching the right people, you're 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 starting in the right way, you're not burying the lead, eventually the outputs will be the right thing too. But if you're only measuring by the outputs, there's a lot of hack ways to get there.
1: Yeah. I say it's simplest. I say frequency and competency equals revenue. So frequency, how many people are you talking to? And competency, are you saying and doing the right things, mm-hmm. right? Uh,
0: tell me about Upwork. Uh, so you, uh, tell me about Upwork when you joined. What was the status of the company? And what were your first 100 days like there?
1: So I joined a, a tiny, Odesk. yeah, <laughs> tiny little company called Odesk. And I think there were 18 employees. They had just raised some money and, um, they weren't sure whether or not they were a marketplace or a workplace, like a staffing firm or a marketplace. And so I, uh, I came in and with 30 de- within 30 days realized that there were, you know, half of the company was going in the direction of the marketplace and half the company was going towards the staffing firm, right, and um, it was clear to me that we had to pick a direction and so, you know, the board very quickly asked, what, what do you think it should be? And I said, I don't know, give me a couple of weeks and I'll tell you. And, and um, basically figured out that we, you know, staffing businesses are nice, but the multiples on staffing business are not, not that big. Where multiples on marketplace at that time were like at least 10x. And so I said, we're a marketplace. And so the first 100 days, we're really figuring out which way is this bus going and then getting everybody on that bus, right, on the same bus. But it was clear to me from the beginning that we were doing something unique, just from a conversion standpoint. So in the very early days of Odesk, we had people on the phone that were selling. And selling was, uh, for those of you who don't know, Odesk is about hiring on-demand talent via the web. So getting, hiring, managing, and paying people as opposed to hiring them locally. And those people work for you remotely. And in the very early days, we prioritized and focused on software developers offshore to small businesses. Uh, This was the lesson I learned from Intellibank, to focus on one thing, not 60 things. And so we went after small businesses. And a closed sale for us was somebody giving you their credit card, putting a $100 deposit on their credit card for the first X hours worked by somebody that they hired. when we spoke to a client, we, we would generate leads, and then they would start chatting or talking to us. And once we spoke to them, 70% of the time they would give you a credit card.
0: Why was that? What did you find?
1: Well, they were in that upper right-hand quadrant that we talked about earlier. They were qualified, they, and could they were aff- interested. They could afford the 100
0: bucks. They could afford the 100 bucks.
1: They needed help. They were looking for a Java programmer. They couldn't hire somebody locally to do their, their work. They couldn't afford to hire somebody locally, so they, the, 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 their criteria, they were qualified, and they were interested. And it was just up to us to guide them over the line, but with a 70% close rate on getting a credit card, now that doesn't mean they started, right? Because now they actually have to hire somebody and start, and we had a pretty good, we had probably about 50% drop off between credit card, taken, $100 deposit, and spent the dollar. So, uh, and we would refund their money if they never hired anybody. That was part of our um, promise. But one day we woke up and realized that we had, I don't know, between fifty dollars and $100,000 of $100 deposits from people that hadn't started. We said, we got a start problem. But the, the conversion was easy. All we were doing was answering some questions. It wasn't, it wasn't really selling, right? They were already in the door. And we very quickly realized that we, we, were, we had our own friction in converting customers. They didn't need to speak to a human. All the questions they were asking us, we could, could codify, an FAQ page make it an FAQ page, or guide them along, say, oh, you probably wanna know how this works. Well, you give us a credit card, we give you 10 Java programmers, you pick one, you start working, and this is the way it works. And so we, we ended up getting out of our own way and saying, we're, we're not gonna touch them. And instead of going from high touch, even though it wasn't that high touch, let's just call it high touch, we, we thought, well, let's go to low touch. And I'll never forget one of our guys said, no, 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 no. we have to go to no touch. Because if we go to low touch, we're never gonna rip the Band-Aid off. The only way we're gonna get the product. And our conversion is so high and our start is so low, it doesn't even matter. If we have half of the credit cards, but double our conversion, then we'll be ahead of the game. And so we ripped the Band-Aid off and went from touching every customer to going no touch overnight. And that forces you to build a product because you can watch where people are getting stuck in your funnel and then say, oh, they're getting stuck here. Let's add functionality for that. Yeah. Right, so.
0: Well, we are, so you said small businesses, you call them, they loved you. And I want to ask about that focus for a little bit. On both sides of the marketplace, your job is to grow the supply side and the demand side. It can be very difficult in the marketplace because you have a chicken and egg problem at times. One of my first startups was a company called Romer. And we were a lot like Airbnb for the outdoors. So farmers, landowners could uh, rent out their property. People go fishing or hiking or camping or or do events. And it was super cool, super fun. Our trouble that we had was we weren't sure how to get a landowner because we only had a few dozen users. And we weren't sure how to get more users because there were only a couple places where people go outside. How did you tackle... Uh, that supply demand side of the marketplace equation?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges in the marketplace. Somebody told me once that if you have to recruit for both sides, you're screwed because you have to recruit clients and workers. And if you look at a lot of the good marketplaces, um, if you bring one side, the other side comes. So Uber, drivers or riders? Well, bring the drivers, the riders come, right? Open table. Bring the restaurants, the diners come. If you have all the restaurants, then you win, right? Um, uh, For us, if we had jobs, we could get all the workers you want. I mean, I think something like ten or 15,000 workers sign up on Upwork every day now. 10,000 workers a day are signing up.
0: Now you're more than Java developers. Right. But if
1: you have the jobs, then the workers are going to come. They're going to find you. And the, the nice thing about jobs is that it's free to syndicate jobs. You can, everybody wants the jobs, so you can put them in deed and all the job listings. And, and so we, um, we had to pay for jobs and workers came organically. Now the, the, the best marketplaces are ones where you can fake the chicken. So there's a way you can juice your marketplace, and I have some good stories around some companies that have done that, but is there a way that you can get leveraged acquisition to populate one side so the day that you open your doors for business, you've got product on the shelf? Because what you don't wanna do, back in the case of Romer, is it Rover? Mm-hmm. Yep, Romer. Romer is you don't wanna say, okay, let's go get campers because we're ready, and you open it up and there's only three properties. Mm-hmm. Right, and two of them are broken, and one of them is booked. Yeah,
0: you don't want to do a lot of the things we did with the
1: Romer. Right, and so you, you you have to have liquidity. You have to have enough products so that when you open the doors, people say, oh, this store has good product on the shelf. And so back to your question, how do we decide small businesses? Well, small businesses, were uh, they were the most desperate. They don't have the same options that a big They don't have recruiters. Has. They have they a recruiter. Salaries. They can't afford to hire them. They don't have... Yeah, they don't have the time, they don't have the money, et cetera. And so they can't compete in the talent war. And similarly, uh, there's workers on the other side of the equation and the other side of the world who are willing to work where $20 an hour is, a, is you know, 10 times what they're used to making. And so we, we capitalized on this global arbitrage and we didn't apologize for it. In the early days, our ad said, hire offshore programmers cheap. Now, some people would say the word cheap is not, you should say inexpensively, or you should say get value. We didn't. We said hire offshore programmers cheap because we were going after the leading, bleeding edge of, of innovators who wanted to get work done and couldn't do it locally. And then as we grew, we moved out that access into... Uh, more sophisticated buyers, bigger teams. I think now you know probably something like twenty percent of Upwork's revenue comes from leading global enterprises, and then we moved beyond the category. Pat on the x-axis further out. You know, first it was programmers. Then, if you're programming, why not QA? Well, if it's QA, why not documentation and tech writing? And if it's tech writing, why not all writing? And if it, why not marketing? Why not sales? Why not support? and you think about the evolution, why not bioinformatics expert, theoretical physicist, accountant, lawyer, you know, and so on. And it's very similar to eBay. Beanie Babies, Pez dispensers, tchotchke, Rolex, car. Um, Amazon, books, books. then
0: music, then CDs, then toys, then...
1: Right, and so we moved out that x-axis, more categories. We moved up the client size, to bigger clients, more more workers, start with 1, now 5, then 10, now bigger clients. And then we moved on a third access which was geographically. So where is the client? In the early days 90% of our work was onshore clients.
0: But the workers were on uh,
1: the clients the clients the, the, the were the buyer American. of services was onshore was US based. 90% of the work crossed a border, uh-huh. I should say. Most of those buyers were in the US, and most of those workers were offshore. They were in India, they were in Eastern Europe, etc. But as we grew, you know, today I think less than 50% of the work originates in the US. So if you think of those three axes all joining at the middle, the X, the Y, and the Z axis down, down to the left, we started in the very center, small businesses, programming offshore and now the business is the entire diagram it's all size clients hundred plus work types globally and so that was the vision from the beginning and that was a lesson I learned at um, at IntelliBank right focus 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 on the one thing you do well and I think that enabled us to really capture that market and then expand opportunistically
0: so all this sounds super perfect and romantic and flawless and thought through. W- what are some examples, if you have any, of mistakes you guys made in your go-to-market strategy, uh, big or small slip-ups or or, or or just mistakes in thinking, mistakes in execution?
1: Oh, my gosh. I uh, We don't have enough time. I mean, this is... And you don't have a couch in here for me to lie on. <laughs> but it's, um... I got a box of tissues somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, we made so many mistakes. But I, I would say that, you know... Y- It's not about picking the things that, um, you know, if you try and pick everything perfectly and you overanalyze, it's really about creating an environment where you try things and if you fail, you fix them, right? Having A-B testing infrastructure, the ability to test something and see how it's going to impact your numbers and your users, I think that's one of the things that we did really well. We, we had I don't even, hundreds of experiments going on at any given time in all aspects of the business, and I think we were really innovative there. One, because it was almost like there were no bad ideas. It was like, well, I don't know, that might be a good idea. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. And if it worked, we built it, and if we didn't... And we would often try and do a painted door Right, where we'd say, let's fake it till we make it. Let's just put a door here and see how many people walk through. And if a lot walk through, then we'll build it. And we'll just power it with a Google spreadsheet or a human for now. And so we did a lot of that really well. The, probably one of the biggest mistakes that I think we made was um, we grow so fast that we lost the sight of quality. And in a marketplace business, you're on the hook for the deliv- deliverable even if you're not in the middle. So I'll never forget, our head of marketing came from OpenTable, and she said that clients would call OpenTable and say, hi OpenTable, I would like my money back. I had a bad steak last night at the restaurant you recommended, and so I want my money back. I'm like, what are you talking about? We're just the reservation system. We didn't, we didn't cook the steak, we didn't tell you to go there, we just helped you make the reservation. And so clients would want to hold us accountable for the deliverable.
0: Yeah, the expectation is perfection. The one time Airbnb has a messy apartment that somebody walks into, the the whole website is uh, is disparaged in the Wall Street Journal.
1: You're screwed, yeah. right? Yeah. So you have to deliver a great experience. And with work, it's really hard because work is art. Like, you know, I think with a Lyft ride or Uber ride or a Airbnb. Yeah, don't crash like, the car. Don't be too smelly. Exactly. You... you you didn't smell you got i got from point first is I got from point A to point B safely and on time. second is the driver didn't smell. we had a nice conversation. third is they gave me a water chewing gum, you know et cetera. And you're like it's still better in the taxi, so the deliverable is not that hard to deliver a good product, right, which is why their average score is so high, right and even if it's not great, you don't want to ruin the driver's life and You know, it's just a ride, you know, from point A to point B. And so I think that um, with work, it's just a lot harder. But if you're in the middle of the work, well, you need humans to do that. You have to deliver. (laughs) And so it's just really hard to guarantee a great result. And in the early days, it was almost like buyer beware. Like I remember talking to clients who were upset with the work that they got and saying, well, what would you have done if this happened locally? Like, let's say you hired somebody for 40 hours here in San Francisco, and at the end of the week, you looked at the work and said, nah, it's not that good. You would pay them and say, don't come back next part week. Part ways, yeah. Right? You'd part ways, but the fine state of California would say, you agreed to 20 bucks an hour times 40 hours, you owe them 800 bucks. Now, you might try and negotiate it down. You might say, listen, seriously, like, this work product, you, you, you did nothing. You were, you were like Kramer on Seinfeld, <laughs> you know, whatever, like... You know, in the office of George, it didn't do anything. But um, you, you would pay them, and then you'd consider yourself fortunate that you didn't spend m- more money. And that was the argument that I would use with clients. Now, I was right. I was winning the battle. I was losing the war, mm. right? Because it's a really bad strategy to throw your client under the bus. So you have to guarantee a result even if you're not in the middle. You have to say, listen, you're going to be happy with this work, or you don't have to pay for it. And you have to be willing to eat it, and if you're willing to do that, then it forces you to maintain quality, get rid of people who can't deliver good results. And and so I think others have realized this. eBay realized this. In the early days, they were like, hey, I didn't sell you the Rolex. You should have done this or you should have done that. And then they implemented a dispute resolution policy, which just pissed people off more. Why? Because you had to document everything and jump through a million hoops and go before an arbitrator and still not get your money back. And so it wasn't until they offered a guarantee, like, hey, if you, don't, if you didn't get what you thought you wanted, no problem, money back, up to $300. We'll give you your money back, no questions asked. And they found that the amount they actually paid out was very, very small, and their customer satisfaction went up 15 points overnight. And so that was probably the most valuable lesson for us is that we grew so fast... And it was almost like hey we're just matching you with the worker but we're not managing the work you are and we should have guaranteed the work
0: uh gary this has been a ton of fun so i want to thank you for sharing all these stories i have a few more quick fire round questions uh if you will otherwise i'll just uh, i will find a couch and i will hear the rest of the upwork story <laughs> uh because i'm absolutely a sucker for those kinds of things um but but Pretty, I'll ask them quickly. You can answer them as, as long as you want, but always start off with what is a favorite sales or startup book?
1: Um, there's a book by Neil Rackham, I think it's called Rethinking the Sales Force. And it, we talked about it earlier. Because it he wrote
0: the forward to the Challenger sale.
1: Yes. That's where I know him from. Yeah. And so Neil was a research psychologist who basically categorized sales. What made him, he just went and watched sales and said, what made him successful what was good, what wasn't good, and w- this rethinking the sales force is all about aligning your sales force uh, based on how your customers want to buy. Transactional, traditional, consultative, or enterprise, and then what's the best channel or the way to do that cost effectively. And so that's one that um, that stuck with me. And then I, I I like spin selling also, which we talked about, situation, problem, implication, need, payoff. And that's really just understanding what are the problems, the challenges, what's keeping them up at night, and then digging further to if this is keeping you up at night, well, what are the implications of that? What is this going to cost you in people time and money? And trying to get to that, what are the real implications before you even get to your solution?
0: Yeah, the thing I really liked about that book is that it it forces you to think far beyond what is that face value numerically. I mean, when we I'll give you my example again with self-driving cars. The easiest part of the equation, or what you think it is, is A, a driver costs 20 bucks an hour, so a self-driving car needs to cost less than that period. But if you really think about it, the driver costs 20 bucks an hour, recruiting them costs you a recruiter at $60,000 a year. Turnover happens at 30% a year. When the driver's late, which happens 10% of the time, that loses X amount of efficiency. So being able to understand their entire Cost structure, even better than the client, and be able to describe it to the client, educate the client about it, show them what they don't even what they're missing about it, uh, is
1: really really powerful. And let me ask you a question: Do they ever struggle finding recruiters? Uh, of course, yeah. Tell, tell me about some of the other challenges they face, right? And so now we're, you're peeling that onion and yeah. you're getting more value. They're no, like, holy shit! Well, I didn't realize yeah, all right. this comes from this. <laughs> Uh, inability right. for
0: my engineer to be able to process quicker or, or self-driving car not being there. Things
1: like you know, what's really interesting. You had said earlier, what happens if it's not resonating or it's not, and it may actually be a different buyer. So, in this case, it may not be the head of production or manufacturing. It might be the CFO. Right? And mm-hmm. so... That,
0: understands those who, things. Who clearer. cares
1: more yeah. about the cost of what it takes to get this done or how much revenue they're losing because they could generate 40% more rides with self-driving than they Mm -hmm. could by the time they hire all those drivers. So you may be talking to the wrong buyer and I can think of a great example of a company that was selling to fraud, trust, and safety and they completely flipped it uh, to a CFO sale by talking about revenue to the bottom line. By going in and saying, listen, we're going to offer you e-commerce insurance. If you ship something to somebody and there's a chargeback, we'll eat it. And they were able to 6X their revenue in a matter of months because they changed the sale from a fraud detection solution to an e-commerce insurance solution. And genius, right? Yeah. Different different buyer. Awesome.
0: Uh, what is a sale you are very proud of landing?
1: I remember earlier we were talking about pure software. I was um, around my shoulders for a little bit. I was a rookie of the year. I was the salesperson of the year. I like a competition. I like, <laughs> I like winning. And this was something where you, know, you win, the company wins. Uh, you, know, you put money in your pocket. And it, it's really satisfying, right? Because you're still on a team. It's not I win, you lose. It's we all win, right? And I, I was selling into New York. And remember earlier I said, if you seeded an account with some licenses, and we had sold a bunch of licenses to an account, JP Morgan a uh, little bank in New York, and I did a 750k deal over the phone. And it was the largest deal the company had done to date. And it was, I, I had one visit to uh, New York, and there was no field rep involved, and that was an incredibly satisfying sale. The CIO of J.P. Morgan at the time was a guy by the name of Peter Miller, and uh, signed the deal, and, uh, you know, standard discounts, and... Um, That that's one that sticks in my mind, and I've had many of those, you know, over the over the years, Um, many multi-million dollar sales to HP and the like. But that one was I was such a young sales rep, and to do it over the phone, right? And I remember I got an award from Reed uh, Hastings for doing that, and I was just we just moved houses, and I found it, and it was like uh, you know it was a plaque, and it you know, um, how old were you at the time? Uh, I, I don't like to talk age. <laughs> I'm a late bloomer. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was fun, I was that yeah, youthful. I was always youthful.
0: Who's an early sales mentor, and what is something you learned from them?
1: Oh my gosh, I've learned so much from so many people. Honestly, I when I first got to Pure, I sat with a, a group of guys who were all fantastic. A group of people actually who were all fantastic sales, and I pulled little things from all of them. You know, like certain techniques and. Um, and we had a lot of laughs along the way, but I, I think a uh, a good mentor, um, I I'd probably go with the the rational guys. There was a guy by the name of John Lovett who was an ex uh, HP guy and just really thoughtful. Is and he the
0: same John Lovett who's uh, like Pod Saves America now? Big political so. John Lovett? No, no maybe different. I don't different. think so.
1: Yeah, I don't think so. But he was uh, he was a great mentor, and I remember him. You know, if I were tactical, he erred on the side of strategic, and so I think he helped, helped me uh, grow my career, and he really was, um, you know, super critical. He's really tough. I remember coming home and saying, oh, she's got my ass kicked, but it was that getting your ass kicked that stretches you to do better next time, um, and then so many people that worked for me. I mean, I had people that worked for me that I actually learned a ton from, and uh Uh, Fortunately, it's a small industry and I have the opportunity to like, there's people that I'm still working with today. They're in my companies. they're consulting, they're all around and I I find that incredibly satisfying. The number of people whose lives I've touched in some way who now have gone on to to greatness. It's really great. It was good. Yeah. Uh,
0: What is a company that you would have loved leading early
1: sales for? Any
0: company in the world.
1: You know, it's really easy in retrospect, and I'm sure there's even better, bigger ones out there. But Salesforce.com. The I say that because when I first saw it, I was like, "Oh, this is really good, right?" They weren't competing against the Siebel's and the like. They were competing against like Act and Goldmine and these, and it was lightweight, it was plug and play, and I always have been a fan of CRM. Like I probably over-engineered my own CRM as a rep. I loved having everything organized, knowing who I was gonna call, a good checklist. I was the guy actually putting notes into CRM where I know most people don't today. I, was, uh, I would have an engineer write a visual basic script so I could do a mail merge in the early days, right? And so like the, the functionality of CRM has always appealed to me and there's just so much you can do it. And that's a product where everybody rides. It's not like one rep has it and you're done. Everybody has to have a copy. And even though you, I don't think most reps live in there every day, it doesn't matter. You need a copy. Everything lives there. It's really hard to get rid of. And it's $100 per person per month. And the clock just keeps ticking, ticking, ticking. The churn is, is incredibly low. So that's one where I'm just in awe of what they've uh what they've accomplished. And it's obvious. It's like, and I liked it from the beginning. I, I should have gone to work there.
0: There's also something about Salesforce people. Three of them have been on this podcast. Viv Faga, Trisha Gelman, Doug Landis, all of them kick ass. They all speak faster and smarter and better and more clever and wittier than anybody I could have found. The Salesforce does something right with their people. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think they do. Well, they set a high bar to begin with. Yeah. And I, you know, I often talk about execution process and architecture. And you know, there's some companies that are just really good at execution—they just sell. But the process piece, the—you know—what do you say? What do you do? When to get the demo? How do you like the codification of that sales process? Second to none. And then the architecture: How are you aligned? Is it vertical? What's a team structure look like? Is a BDR, SDR, AE? There's a career path. And it's rare that you see a company do all three of those things really well. Mm-hmm. So I admire companies that have done a really nice job on the process, the architecture, structure of sales, and then, of course, the execution.
0: Two questions left. Can you sell me this pen?
1: Oh, yeah, but I'm going to copy the, what's uh, <laughs> the great movie where it's The like, Wolf of Wall Street yeah, or yeah, Glenn Wolf Garrett gets Ross. Like, make it hey, make- do me a favor. <laughs> Sign this piece of paper. Yeah, you got a pen? <laughs> here you go. Yeah, I got a pen right here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um,
0: I like it. That one works for me. Yeah, Why not? Yeah. I, I love that. Oh, <laughs> it's a different answer. Best, yeah. uh, somebody else referenced the Glenn, Gary, or Ross, but I like the Wolf of Wall Street one myself. Yeah, the
1: Wolf of Wall Street uh,
0: awesome. Gary, this has been so, so helpful and educational. Where can people uh, learn more about you, uh, what you're doing now with Polaris, which we didn't get to speak about, but your venture capital work, where can people go find more uh, about Gary Swart?
1: Um, uh, LinkedIn is a good place to find me. I, I, I uh, tend to do all my blogging there. That's a pretty good... Channel and forum, I think, Um, and I'm Gary Swart uh, uh, on LinkedIn. And then, um, uh, very quickly about Polaris, we're uh, um, investing out of Fund Nine now, fresh 400 million bucks. Um, Been around for 20 plus years. Invest in both B2B SaaS and healthcare companies, and we find it really interesting at the intersection of B2B SaaS and healthcare. Uh, It's obviously a growing market, and we think we're uniquely qualified in that area. So we're doing more and more. Uh, there, and obviously there's just a lot of, uh, of great stuff going on. And um, in my spare time, I, um, I'm a flight attendant on Southwest. No, I'm not a flight attendant on Southwest. I'll be looking Southwest. for you. Just <laughs> I got the credit card. I spend a lot of time <laughs> up and down the Western seaboard. But I, um, yeah, uh, uh, outdoors, live down the peninsula, four kids, and uh, yeah, just try and, try and keep busy. I often say that you have work, you have exercise, you've got friends, and you've got family. And that's, that's, you know, some percentage is dedicated to all of those things. And there's not much left for, for anything else. Right, so. You can't
0: forget literature and wine. Yeah. And the numbers five and six. Yeah. yeah <laughs> yes, Yeah. <laughs> Gary, thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks for having me. was really fun. Wow. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Gary Swartz. If you like what you heard, I highly recommend you check out his LinkedIn. You just slash in slash Gary Swart, S-W-A-R-T, or check out what Polaris Partners are doing and some of the remarkable healthcare and other technology companies that they're investing in. If you like the podcast, I ask that you please, please, please leave us a review, give us a rating, tell us what you think so more people can find us. And if it's at all helpful or you want to give any tips or advice, please reach out at a Lubarsky 2 all over the interwebs. Happy selling.